Welcome back to Your 1230, the only podcast where our guests tell their story with the help of 12 questions in just 30 minutes. I'm your host, Mike Salitro, and today we are really excited to be speaking with Jeremy Pope. Jeremy is an overholic. He's addicted to helping entrepreneurs in the coaching and consulting space increase their close rate. It's fun going beyond the boring industry standard of 14.5%. He was never a super talented salesperson with crazy charisma. He even hated making uh, marketing and sales for the first couple of years in his entrepreneurial journey. But after honing his sales craft in the, quote, non-talented way, he was finally able to let his new giver process do the heavy lifting and has become a top salesperson. Jeremy, I'm cutting the bio short there. There's so many things I want to get into. Welcome. We are really excited to be speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great. That's great to hear. And I want to start up top there. Overholic. Where does the term come from and what does it mean? Oh, it's a portmanteau for sure. So it comes from nowhere in particular, but um, it's it comes from the 12-step, the hi, I'm Jeremy and I'm an alcoholic kind of thing. So um, it, it's something that I'm not ashamed to admit that we we talk a lot about givers stuck in a, in a taker's process. And I don't believe it's a taker's world by any means, but there are a lot of people who feel claustrophobic or cramped when they're in a taker process. And so helping the the givers, those tend to be the, the people that find their way to me as the givers who feel kind of cramped. And so helping them find a natural way to sell while giving is a big deal. And they often can improve very quickly by just by finding something that's a fit for them. So it's a, uh, it's pretty addictive. It's a, uh, I'm, it's, I, I just love it. I just love helping people with that stuff. Very nice. Uh, a lot of things I want to follow up on there because when you talk about sales and sometimes being natural and having a fit for your personality, it doesn't always click for the person who is either making that call or looking to uh, inform somebody else about a product or service. And you mentioned yeah. giving. Uh, how were you able to kind of find that for yourself and how do you help others determine what the the best fit for it for them could be and then how they could use that and i want to use your term your giving process in a way that mm -hmm. uh, works for them as well yeah there are a few pieces that i found to be pretty consistent with givers and you can define that term pretty broadly i don't get really picky about any of these things in fact one of my concepts is there are no magic words only magic feelings and it, kind of the maya angelou people will they'll forget what you said to them, but they'll always remember how you made them feel. It's a, it's a similar concept there. And so I, I tell people, don't get too worried about your script. Don't get too worried about a particular um, approach that you're using. Just make sure that you're having real transparent conversations and that you are, um, you're, you're following enough of a structure consistently moves people to action. So the Hollywood three-act structure, the play three-act structure, like that, that is designed in a certain way for a particular reason. And sales has to follow certain things, but there are a lot of ways to get there into those, into those certain things. So 
Mm, I'm a little bit rambly today. I may have to get your help bringing me back on point a few times. That was a long answer to a short question. Uh, how close am I to answering it? I think you're almost all of the way there. Okay. Hopefully my follow-up question will uh, all right. help help kind of get us to the, to the finish line on that. So the part of the bio that I skipped is that you've spent many years coaching hundreds, if not thousands of, of people on uh, this process and understanding how to strategize or use that three uh, act model or a model that works but is kind of geared to what they're doing in a way to uh, help the person yeah. that they are selling how um how how do people find you what what is their background are, are they excelling in what they're doing and looking for a different way have they hit a roadblock or what's the story you hear most when uh, your clients are coming to you my people typically come to me when they've solved the lead flow issue Sometimes they come to me a little bit before that and I can help them like figure out either, oh, there's only one piece missing or you need to go talk to a friend of mine and solve this first before I can really help you. So I'm a big fan of the theory of constraints by Eli Goldratt in the goal book, old book. But the the idea is that there's always one and only one constraint in a business. There's never zero. There's never two. There's one bottleneck or constraint. And almost all effort you spend solving anything but that one issue is wasted. Like not 40% wasted, but 90% wasted. Because when you solve the biggest issue in your business, you're going to change the landscape of all the other things going on so dramatically. It, it Everything else, you might as well not have done it. So that's usually the the constraint they come to me when the constraint is i don't know how to close i don't know how to negotiate i don't know how to get people from the world of analysis and and paralysis into the world of imagination and action and motivation so that's that's when we do our thing the way that we are doing that is often i, I talk about transparency a lot I'm i'm not a big fan of talking about ethical selling or authentic selling or things like that. I mean, those, those words, a lot of people use those words, but they can mean so many different things now. So transparency is a little harder to misconstrue because there are fewer people using the word. So let's start there. Um, the, uh, the foundation of my seven level structure is objection catalyst. We don't, rebut objections we don't handle objections or people we transform those objections and a lot of times you can do that before the sales call so if you've got a really strong funnel setup where you can do some significant marketing and warm-up and indoctrination some people call it the indoctrination funnel then you can handle a lot of objections before you even get on the phone now that's not appropriate for well more than half of the systems out there in this world like you can't you can't count on that kind of setup with a lot of things but you put as much of the objection handling before it's a problem as you can and i i just call it the elephant in the room technique okay are there a few things you know you're going to need to talk about well everybody in any industry cares about price and if they say price is no object you know price is an object like that it's 
it's hard to, for me to make sales when people say price is no object. Like that's a big red flag. Like this may not be a qualified buyer here when they say that. There's a reason price is no object because I have no intention of paying it, you know? But when you've got a, a standard set of issues that are going to come up, okay, let's plan on handling them. And so around price, I talk about this a lot because it's an easy example. It, it applies to every industry. Um, hey, Mike, I, that's how you can tell a role play starting with a sales trainer. They use your first name, right? Um, hey, Mike, I, I am not the world's smoothest salesperson. I let my system do a lot of the heavy lifting, but I'm pretty awkward sometimes and I'm feeling kind of awkward around money right now. Do you mind if we just talk about money right up front and then we spend the next 40 minutes or so figuring out if the value's there, if there's a fit, if it really does solve the problem? Is that okay with you? They're always going to say yes. And then you say, okay, so it's $18,000 and we install the all the sales team structure for you and we get your salespeople recruited. Is that even in range? Should we even keep on talking like as long as we really do solve the problem? And then they'll tell you yes, no, maybe. If they say yes, you're about 60% closed. If they say maybe, then you know you've got some pricing stuff to work on, some financing or some payment structuring or or whatever. There's some negotiation around around pricing. And if they say no, then they either weren't qualified or you've got an integrity issue of some type going on where they just didn't know enough about what was going on or they don't keep their word because they just told you yes a second before. So either way, you get a lot of data back from it right there. And now you have 40 minutes to collaboratively problem solve or however long your calls are. But that's just one example of that elephant in the room technique. And you can apply it to any topic you want. If it's delivery, if it's the close date, nothing's going to close for 120 days. And I know there are four other properties that could close in 120. Like anything you're concerned about, pop it into that technique. And it gives you a very different negotiating position to start with. It's just fascinating what it does to the mindset in the calls. I, I love that example because it illustrates the the transparent point right away. So I'm putting this mm. on the table. Here's Here's where I'm coming from. Here's what I want to talk about. The thing that made me think of as well is that a negotiation kind of brings out a dance, if you will, or yeah. the, some people feel that even, you know, $18,000 is the number that you said. If I was expecting 25 and I hear 18, sometimes in that conversation, regardless of how mm-hmm. transparent I intend to be, it's like, well, he said 18, maybe I can get him to 15. How yep. do you train your people if you or coach your, your clients when the transparency piece comes up? But it's, yeah, Jeremy, but they're, you know, I don't feel like they're being transparent with me. How do I deal with that imbalance when I'm putting all my cards on the table? Yeah. I'm, I've got everything and I don't feel like I always get that back. Yeah. It depends on the industry and as to how we handle it. I've sold houses for a developer before. I've been a loan officer. I've been a life insurance salesperson. So a lot of things with wildly variable prices, depending on what you decide to put together. And so for one, when you're in a highly customized industry, uh, you can say, you can give a range with this. So we're, we're almost always talking between 
350,000 and 700,000 in this area of town or whatever. Feel free to give me more examples if you'd rather. But uh, is that even in range? Um, my commission structure is X. Is that even in range? Like as long as I get you what you need, is that perfectly fine? I don't want to be fighting on this. I want us to fight together to get what we need on the other side of the table, things like that. So you're co-opting them and you're creating transparency and vulnerability in some strategic ways. I, the, the cards on the table metaphor is an interesting one because I often say we're not playing poker against people. We, we are dance partners. And so you used both of my favorite metaphors right there. Uh, like this is an MMA, right? We're, we're, when when you are the only times that you want to confuse and paralyze your opponent uh is when they are truly an opponent when and the way that you do that is by hiding information people can't make the less information you have the less able you are to make an informed decision the less informed of a decision you're making there's an there's an information imbalance there and so we want to confuse and paralyze an opponent in war in fighting in poker in anything where where it's an adversarial situation confusion and paralysis is one of our main goals as a player but mm, most of the time richard kosh the 80 20 guy he's a he's around a billionaire at this point he, he wrote the 80 20 principle and he talks about coopetition he wrote another well couple couple more books but he in his book super connect he talks about coopetition and it's 80 percent cooperation 20 percent competition is kind of the way he thinks about it and i found that to be pretty true um most of the time it's okay to turn over a fair number of cards if you're thinking in terms of cards uh, that doesn't mean give away all your advantages but maybe your advantages are not in the informational realm. They might be a different type of advantage in the first place. Like if you're coming from a position of strength in a negotiation, there's going to be a significant amount of that that's not coming from an information asymmetry. It's coming from you have a billion dollars in investor funds to work with. Like no amount of information or lack of information is going to change that number, right? So those are a few of the the factors I use to think about that. Um, percentages, you can talk about a percentage and get that nailed down, like a commission percentage for a realtor. Uh, a range of prices, it still gives you a tremendous amount of room to customize the actual thing that's being offered. The and then productized services. I, I deal with a lot of people who do productized services. I, I mainly deal in the uh, the service industry. So property managers and, and folks like that, um, more so than the investor side of your audience here would be more my crew most of the time. I love negotiation. It's super fun. Roger Dawson, Secrets of Power Negotiating taught me so much. It's in my top five business books of all time. But as far as customers go, it tends to be more service providers and having a productized service where it's the same package every time or the same three packages every time. There's, there's plenty of theory around that in building a good package, but once you have it built, it can make it very 
uh, simple to talk about and show you, okay, am I qualifying correctly as I get into these calls with these prospects? Are they suspects or are they prospects? You'll hear a lot of salespeople talk about it like that. Uh, I'm writing down my notes feverishly over here because I really oh, like wow. the, the way that you uh, start off with the, you only hide your information from opponents. So if that's the the setting and you give a few, you know, war, poker, something that mm-hmm. where there clearly is an adversary, then you can, your goal should be to give the information when it's mm-hmm. appropriate. Uh, so I like that. But if you are in a collaborative setting, which it seems like that's how you are. Like a dance partner. Yeah. dance partner are kind of guiding your clients to do then information should be exchanged much more freely so i think that's a wonderful example to post Uh, i have a couple of follow-ups the first you mentioned that this is where your uh, engagement with your clients kind of focuses on if do you ever hear and here's my role play hey jeremy that's great i i don't have a problem closing necessarily i have a problem getting there in the first place that they even will take my call listen to what i'm selling mm. or i don't have an audience to pitch to and you mentioned that might be somebody else um, but mm-hmm. what what can that person do to either build credibility or get to the point where they are trying to uh, make a sale or be in front of somebody who has yeah. the ability to tell them yes so i always end up looking at the offer uh this is, we've mentioned Alex Hormozzi in his book, $100 million offers, um, or we didn't mention the book, but that is his book. Uh, and I, I've trained a lot of people who have become very good at putting offers together. And if your marketing is not hitting, if your message is not hitting and your like, maybe, maybe your marketing is all outbound prospecting, that's okay. Or it's a referral strategy that you've set up very deliberately where it's a predictable system rather than how do you get your business? Oh, word of mouth mostly. No, that just means you don't have a system, right? But when you have a real system around word of mouth, they do exist. And so uh, they can be built. But the offer has to hit because you're not there to do that work for it. You're not there to use your own personal charisma or your own personal passion around your offering or around the problem. There's a saying that I like that a novice falls in love with a solution, an expert falls in love with the problem. And it's kind of a different way to say that every, um, if all you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Um, We're here to solve a kind of problem, but we might have 12 different ways of solving that. And three of those ways are go talk to John, go talk to Bill, go talk to Elizabeth. Like, that's not me. I don't do those three of the 12. But if if you're not getting in front of people, your offer is not working. And you're not getting the... I think I can honestly leave it there. The reason your offer is not working is because you do not understand your ideal client profile or your ideal client avatar, ICP, ICA, whatever you want to call it. The unsexy spade work, I call it the ditch digging of marketing, is avatar and offer. And imaginary clients pay you in imaginary dollars. Imaginary buyers pay in imaginary dollars. You cannot invent your avatar. You cannot make up your avatar, even though that's the way most business owners approach it. You discover your avatar. So if you are out there discovering you are also doing the contact work that 
a lot of givers have trouble with prospecting. I have a massive block about prospecting. I'm an amazing networker, which I think of as the other side of the coin. I meet a person and I determine what their needs are. A prospector can meet a product and determine what its buyers are. I can't do that. Uh, my my brain just will not let me. I'm I try and over customize everything, and it takes me 15 minutes to make one call because I'm like, okay, I want to make sure this really really fits, and I'm super over qualifying at that part of the process. So I have to find other ways to get in touch with people. Networking, well, that's my method right there because I know lots of cool people. My people are the best thing about me. And so when I can approach it from that direction, I can get into all kinds of buyer interviews and market research opportunities because I'm not pressuring myself. And I found a lot of givers do that thing to themselves. They're they're thinking of prospecting, and that's part of my issue as well with, with that even now. Prospecting feels like a taker activity. Hey, want to buy my stuff? Buy my stuff? Buy my stuff? And when you can get yourself out of that headspace reliably, then you're golden. Um, I fall into that headspace very consistently. <laughs> and so I have to just make sure that most of my systems are focused on other marketing methods. Um, and networking is the the style I use for that. But market research, that feels like a giver activity to me. And so I can do it. Hey, I want to figure out how I can serve you and people like you. So. Let's talk about it. Um, Chat GPT and the auto GPT that I just figured out how to set up and install on my computer two days ago, uh, they are very helpful with market research as well because I now have a research assistant on my computer as of two days ago, and I had to install Python on my computer and use PowerShell, and I don't understand half of it. But it can go find 12 dozen articles on exactly the pain points in my industry in 20 minutes, whereas it, it would have taken me quite some time to find those articles and summarize pain points. Like we don't resolve solved problems, you know? So if there's a solved problem out there, just use the answer. It's not cheating. Like it shortcuts are not cheating in the business world, only in high school does it count as cheating, you know? So you can you can use other people's answers for this as long as you really, really know it. But that that market research is not sexy for most people. Uh givers, they can do it in a way that many other people cannot. Uh, because when you're really interested in a person as a person. It lets you get in their heads in some ways that other people are not paying attention to, that that other people are not trying to, I guess. There's no particular skill involved except actual caring, and tactical empathy is a very useful thing. That was a lot of rambling. Again, no, sorry. There's, a, there's another <laughs> solid answer I'm going to start with, and I'm going to okay. miss plenty of stuff. Okay. The charisma piece that no amount of charisma is going to sell a bad product fit or a product that should not be not when you're not there. So yeah, I think you can overcome it if you're a if you're an amazing snow to es Eskimos, sand to Arabs kind of salesperson, but that's kind of a taker mindset. So yeah. And I was gonna say that's I think that 
some may consider the traditional salesperson. It's like, well, I can sell anything. Just get me in front of the person and then I'll, I'll sweet talk them or whatever. Mm. That's not what we're doing here. Right. Uh, the quote, you know, the novice falls in love with the solution is, is really excellent because it, it is mm. that the uh, everything looks like a nail type thing. Uh, and that instead, and it goes hand in hand with the networking prospecting piece, which I'll try to end on that. If you are focused on who's in front of you, what their problem is and what the best way to solve it, most of the time, if not at least some of the time, what you're selling, what you're providing, what you have is probably not going to be the right answer. So if you can open the door, show them the path, that is going to build credibility for next time and say, hey, you didn't try to sell me something that I didn't need, wouldn't have solved my actual problem or would have only got me mm-hmm. you know, 40% of the way. So that's why I thought of you because what we talked about really can help this person. And that's how right. that networking piece makes a ton of sense that you're not necessarily trying to sell anybody anything. You're meeting people and you're understanding where they are, where they want to go, and how you can uh, help them if that is your uh, kind of predisposed way. So when we talk about givers, mm-hmm. I, I put myself in that bucket that I'm great at meeting people as well and trying to see ways to help them out, get them where they ultimately want to end up. But the prospecting mm-hmm. piece can be difficult because now it's like, well, now I've got something that I'm asking them to do, or it's no longer I'm helping them. It's when you can yeah. flip it, that makes a ton of sense. So nice. I, I, I love the story. It's not rambling at all. Now I'm rambling at my question, but here's what I wanted to ask. <laughs> Is it possible for you to, if a taker comes to you and says, Hey, I need, I need help with this, or can you coach me? I know it's not your style, but I need what you do to make what I do better. How do you, how do you reconcile that? And how can you work with them if you do? It depends. If it's somebody who's wanting to change their mindset or, or if the, the, a lot of people come to me with a taker process and they don't know what they need um as the marketing gets out there and it resonates then it, th- there are a lot of people that they'll ask me to help them fix a script or they'll ask me to help them fix um something that their team is doing and it turns out that there's some accidental abuse going on from management to the sales team, like dumping totally unqualified leads on the team and then expecting all kinds of miracles from that team. And I was like, okay, A, you don't have a a compensation structure set up that lets you expect miracles. Uh, B, there's no stability here. C, how, how are you how how do you expect your people to not over push and stretch their own boundaries, thus stretching the client's boundaries if you're giving them just crap leads? And so there's that constant tension between marketing and sales. The leads are crap. No, you're crap. The Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross kind of thing. And so there's you always have to track it down uh, 50% of the time. A closing problem is actually a marketing and a qualification problem. And so you can't ignore any of it as, as humbling as it is. I mean, everybody wants to say that my thing is the, the, the number one reason startups fail or the number one reason businesses fail is because of my thing I've chosen to focus on. And I, I would like to do that, but, um, it, it's only as a whole that it, that it works together. So you have to examine all of it. Um, it, as long as they're willing to, to uh, mature in their mindset. I mean, my mission in life is help people get free, help people grow up and get people closer to God. So there's 
there's a ministry opportunity available in almost any relationship if you're if you have your eyes open for it. And so I'm very open to like, okay, how far will you come with me? It's it's not about what I'm willing or not willing to provide to you because of that. There's some industries I won't get involved with. I don't do crypto forex day trading because I don't know enough about them to vet them properly. I won't do vice or gambling issues, no matter how profitable they can be. And I won't deal with anything marijuana related until the legal climate changes significantly enough that I am no longer in fear of having my bank account shut down for consulting with a business that does that stuff, you know? So there are personal convictions that come into it, but it's, it's more about, well, if we've got a person here, a person is not a product and that person may switch products or they may go to a different company or they may start another company. So as long as the person is wanting to grow and and they'll they'll be coachable, they'll do the stuff, then yeah, come on. That's that's, that's a great answer. And as you mentioned, your mm-hmm. personal convictions and your your mission, we talked a little bit before uh, hitting record with some of the causes that are intertwined into your business. Uh, right. If you wouldn't mind uh, talking a little bit about because they're they're fascinating, and I think it really uh, hammers home and, and exemplifies the way that you work by the way that you partner with these organizations to help them do good in, in places that really need it. Mm. Thank you. Okay. Um, yeah. So I care about like my mission in life in business. It's almost all focused on founders, entrepreneurs, founders that that person is a very high impact person that when I consult with them or when I help them do something, they instantly multiply that leverage to a larger impact. So it's very rewarding for me. Um, on the the uh, missions side of things, what I tend to care about are things that let someone move from subsistence into growth mode. So clean water is a big deal for me. Uh, there's an organization called ChristForIndia.org that they are digging clean water wells. It, it's estimated by some people that 80% of the groundwater in India is contaminated. And there are so many deaths from dysentery and so many issues around this and so many lost days of work by being sick all the time. There's so much work. There, there are some places where the women and the female children are spending six to eight hours a day on water-related activities just because their village doesn't have clean water. And so when you can dig a well for a village of 300 people, then you give that family time back, you give them years of life back, and you give them the ability to hold down or uh, to hold down a job or to start something new with the extra time and become entrepreneurial. Uh, so, or, or at least go into growth mode. Maybe entrepreneurial is too strong of a word. That's a pretty specific thing, but to, to move from subsistence into growth mode. So there's that. And then we're looking right now at a pretty amazing seeming charity called Deeply Rooted Grounds in Nicaragua that uh, they're in the Hinotega province or or region i don't know what to call it and it's coffee plantations and it's practically slavery um brickyards and farming are the two main places where slavery shows up uh like construction and farming are the two the two big places around the world 
And so when you've got um, a two-year-old that is out there picking coffee, uh, picking coffee berries, and their their family doesn't have enough to eat, uh, that makes a really a big difference. And Deeply Rooted Grounds is they're feeding around 9,000 children a week with three meals a week. And for some of those kids, it's it's almost the only almost the only meals that they get. Um, th- these these are Nicaraguan kids with hair that's turning blonde from malnutrition. I mean, these kids should have black hair, and their body literally does not have the melanin to put. It, it can't put pigment in their hair. They're so malnourished, and so. Um, it makes a very big difference to just be able to provide just a couple meals a week. And, uh, we're, we're pretty excited about getting involved with them. So those are, those are the two big things that I care about. And we, um, we push, uh, a percentage of every sale into that stuff. Um, we've estimated that we, we don't have a calculation for deeply rooted grounds. We're not like involved enough with them yet to know, what numbers can be or anything. I'm going to go down there this fall. And then, but with uh, Christ for India and the clean water wells, uh, we're looking at a family of five uh, for every order that someone makes from us. Uh, they're feeding a, fa- they're, they're giving a family of five clean water for about 20 years. That's kind of the the number that we've been able to figure out so far. Well, th- thank you for sharing that. Uh, you know, we can. I can. It's my pleasure. For those, for those listening, you can hear in Jeremy's voice. Anybody who's watching uh, a part of this, you can see how passionate Jeremy is about this. And you know, it, they're wonderful causes. And when you have a business like yours, and you teach the fundamentals that you do, uh, and then you tie it to such uh, efforts like this, it really, really hammers home the message that if you can help someone get to where they want to go, provide them with a value, a solution, whatever you want to call it, that uh, will take them forward, uh, you really can have a incalculable effect on how other people live, work, uh, and yeah. can kind of remove Founders have so life. many options available to them if they structure things in cool ways. And um, I'm proud to help do that. That's fantastic. Uh, we are coming up on time. Last thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, Jeremy, you mentioned that you've got something launching today. I uh, just wanted to uh, ask you how your newsletter has come about, what people can find in there and where they can find it if uh, if they'd mm. like to read more or learn more about what you're up to. Thank you. Uh, salescalloverhaul.com slash letter. That is our sales call overhaul newsletter. It's the mental model Monday that we're doing first. I love teaching how to think. The the process of structuring deals was really how I came to it. Like Roger Dawson, Secrets of Power Negotiating, all, all that kind of stuff. Like, how do we create a win-win-win? I went to work for a developer because he could do that and learned so much. And so the mental models that successful people use, they are really specific. And they are really mechanical in a lot of ways. Uh, Chip and Dan Heath teach their decisive rap model, the WRAP model. And I'll I'll be teaching that in a newsletter. But just they're endless mental models that can be used. And Charlie Munger says, if you just get 80 or 90 mental models, you're not going to have to think anymore. 
you just figure out which model you plug in this problem to. And it's, it's been so powerful for me and I'm, I'm honored to share that with everybody else. So we talk about that and about uh, AI in sales and a sales leadership element and perhaps a sales recruiting element or, uh, and then we give uh, like a straight up sales uh, improvement piece, a, a tip, I guess you could say, but it, it's about a page, page and a half, five bullets. And then there's a long version that we'll link out to basically. Very nice. So we'll be sure to include all of that in the show notes. Uh, we'll try to include all the books we've discussed uh, and a lot of the um, the resources as well as the causes uh, in, in India and Nicaragua that you referenced today. Uh, Jeremy, we've I think we've covered a good amount of ground. Is there anything as we wrap up today that I didn't ask you that I probably should have? Oh, goodness. I, I mean, <laughs> I, I talk too much anyway, so I don't know. Okay. Well, I could I could certainly ask you questions all day. So I, I will stop here. Uh, hopefully we can do this again. Thank you so much for joining okay. us. And uh, I wish you nothing but the best going forward. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. 